Welcome to a study of Dude, You're On To Me. If you would, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're walking through this book. And give everybody a minute to turn there and then we'll spend a moment to pray. Man, you have a child dedication and everybody leaves. My family's here. We're going out to eat. All right? There's a word for that. It's called pagans, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> Dedicate my child to the Lord. Oh, you're going to teach the Bible? We're going to go eat food. <laughs> Maybe we should be talking about prayer and fasting. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Would be. So let's take a moment. Let's pray, please. Father, thank you for our time together here in the Word. We thank you, God, for uh, the beauty that you've surrounded us with, your handiwork and creation. We pray, Father, that uh, our minds will be focused and saturated on your truth that you would bless our time together. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's where we're at. Last week, we left off with uh, chapter 1, verse 11. And what chapter 1, verse 11 is, is actually a a blessing pronouncement by Moses, uh, thanking the Lord and desiring for his blessing to continue upon the children of Israel because they've been multiplied. Now, why is this important? Chapter 1, verse 10, the Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. Now, here's the trivia question. Why does Moses describe it this way? Because you can't count the stars, and where is someone told to count the stars as far as people are concerned? Genesis 15 with Abram, exactly. So notice what Moses is doing here is Moses is showing the fulfillment of this promise. So think about this. This promise is given to Abram. He doesn't have any kids at all. And in fact, that's his whole dilemma of why he wanted to talk to God in the first place, wasn't it? That's the whole reason why he decided to not say Yahweh Elohim, but he said Adonai Yahweh in speaking to him. It's been real interesting how the Lord's just putting all this together, uh, how all the studies are working together. It's really great. Uh, But in doing that, what is he doing? He's calling on God for some kind of answer as far as offspring. God, I have nothing, and I'm old. We need something. Well, notice, first generation that comes out of the Exodus, you've got all these people. Now, it's it's believed that it was between one to two million, some people say one and a half million, just in men, not including women and children. It could have been a lot more. Uh, there, there are estimates all over the place, but it's very interesting when we read through the idea of going into Egypt. In fact, let's do this. Turn with me back to the book of Genesis and let's find what goes on here. We're actually going to look at Genesis and I believe it's chapter 48 where it's brought up. Let's see here. No, it's 46. I apologize. Genesis 46, and this is when Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. His brothers have returned back, and they give word to Jacob, to Israel, and they tell him to come, and why does he say to come? Because you will see your son Joseph, right? Thought he was dead. Remember the coat of many colors? Andrew Lloyd Webber, anybody? Okay, just making sure everybody's with me on that, so. Exactly, Donnie Osmond, exactly. Making sure to see Donnie Osmond. Come see Donnie. He's playing in Egypt. Uh, so look at verse chapter 46, verse 1. 
So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. See, some people say vacating the land and going to Egypt was actually a sin because it wasn't trusting God's promise. No, that's what happened in chapter 12 when Abram was given the promise and he vacated because of a famine. Notice that God is giving his approval for him to go, but look at the reason why. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you a great nation there. Egypt is going to serve as an incubator for the Jewish people is pretty much what's going on here. They are going to blossom and thrive and grow to exponential proportions. He says here, verse 4, I will, I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again and Joseph will close your eyes. There's the promise of God as to why he should leave and why he should go and the blessing that will take place in being there. I'm going to do something among you that is going to bring a lot of offspring. So when we think about that time when Jacob is traveling over, and if we know our Bible, we talk about how long were they there? Do we know? How long were they there in exile? This is actually a trick question with some people. They think it's much shorter, but do we know how long? How long were they in exile there? And Huh? 400 years is how long they were there. Uh, some people believe it was 380 years if you calculate it, but it's about 400 years. You will be uh, a captive there for 400 years under those people. And remember, you actually go from the end of Genesis from a Pharaoh who respected Yahweh and listened to Joseph. Remember, Joseph was the second in command. When you have those generations go through, there's a Pharaoh who comes on the scene who cares nothing about God, is an extremely prideful, and this is why God has to bring in each one of the plagues in order to humble Pharaoh, and because of his unbelief, ultimately use Pharaoh as an object of his wrath. Very important. So now we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. When we see that the fulfillment of this promise, verse 10, that's what we're talking about. We are talking about the blossoming of the seed and the offspring, sorry, the offspring uh, of the people. I'll try to keep consistent in my language there. Verse 11, may the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more then you are and bless you just as he has promised you. So notice, promise for more blessing. Verse 12, how can I alone bear the load and burden of you and your strife? Now stop for a second. Moses was in a unique position. Why is this? Well, number one, he had direct access to God. Having direct access to God, in fact, we know later on, Moses maybe didn't seem directly face-to-face, but what the Scripture's pain is, and Moses met face-to-face with God. Does everybody remember when he stepped out and his face brightly showed and he had to cover it up with a veil in order to cover the glory that was radiating off of his face? Now, we know that the Bible's very clear. No man has seen God at any time. But the idea there is him having such a personal relationship with the Creator of all things that it physically affected him in some way. We're probably also familiar whenever Moses asked God, would you please show me your glory? And if you remember, God tells him, no man can ever see my face and live. But what will happen is, is you will hide in the cleft of the rock and I'll even cover it up with my hand and I will pass by you and all you will see is the tail end of my glory. That's as close in these bodies as even Moses, who walked in a very special way with God, could possibly get. Everybody with me? 
So notice, it's kind of a, a, a big deal that we see going on here. How can I bear the load and the burden of you and your strife? Even with that access to God, he could not handle all of the cases of the problems with people. You get a whole bunch of people together, and what's one thing that you got? Problems, exactly. And every one of those problems will be due to miscommunication somehow. So Moses is having to hear every case. Now, can you imagine getting up in the morning, you're done with your breakfast, and what's your job for the day? You're going to hear cases all day. And then maybe you break for lunch, afternoon, evening. You've done nothing but hear cases. Go to bed. What do you got to look forward to tomorrow? More cases. They just don't end. Everybody doesn't get their act together. So notice, Moses is worn out. Now, if you remember, this advice comes from his father-in-law, Jethro, when he goes back. And look at verse 13. Here's how it manifests itself. Choose, now watch these qualities, wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will appoint them as your heads. Now, stop. This sets a very interesting precedence. Who's doing the choosing here? Is it Moses? No, it's not. Who is it? The people. The people of their tribes choose their leaders. Now, why is this important? You think Moses knows everybody? Man, I've been here since June. I still don't know everybody, right? Moses has a lot, 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 lot more people to deal with, right? He's got a ton of people. And so notice, choose from amongst yourself, look at the qualities. Number one, wise. This is the idea that has proper manners in civil and military interactions is the idea behind this word. Very interesting. Moses is speaking, but he's speaking to the people. Choose. No, he's saying choose for yourself. Discerning. This means having wisdom and understanding. Able to not just know, know truth, but apply truth. There's a lot of people that know the truth but would not be considered wise because they don't apply the truth. And notice, experienced. He's got a track record. Now, why is it smart for Moses to have the people choose it? Well, because they're the people who hang around with them every day. Think, fast forward, Acts, right? And you have two groups of Jewish widows that are being neglected. And in the midst of that neglect, the Hebraic Jews, widows, are getting a daily proportion of food. The Grecian Jewish widows are not getting the same proportions. And so there's an uproar that happens. And the apostles are trying to go around and sort all this stuff out. In fact, the idea of the word used there is waiting on tables like a waiter or a waitress. That's what they're doing. It's taking them away from the word of God and putting them in the midst of this situation. And they're like, it's getting out of hand. We don't know what to do. And so what do they say to the people? Choose for yourselves seven men that will overtake this. Why is that? Because they, the people, will know them from the track record of their characteristics. Notice it's not, choose these people and we'll hope that they become wise and discerning and experienced. You're in trouble. Anybody ever tried to hire somebody like that? Well, let's hire this guy and I hope that he's wise and experienced and you're asking for problems, aren't you? Because you have expectations that aren't currently being met and therefore probably won't be met at all. 
This is just like whenever we talk about a selection of elders or deacons in the Bible. It's not people that we hope these qualities will begin to be cultivated in. It's the fact that they're already demonstrating those type of leadership qualities, those type of wisdom decisions that brings them to the forefront of why they should be chosen to be in those positions. It's no different here. And who better knows than the people? Now, here's the thing. What are they doing with these people? They're going to set them up to be judges over them. Does that eliminate a lot of complaining when you choose your own judge over your case? Moses is a smart man. But this is the judge that you chose. Yeah, yeah, well, well, mm. And then you usually get like your mom or something like that because you don't have anything to come back with, right? I mean, it's your responsibility. So choose wisely. Think about it thoroughly. Pray through this decision. It's very important. Choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will appoint them. In other words, Moses will then ratify them before the people. I will publicly recognize them so everybody knows the people that they appointed for their tribe and who's in charge. That's at seven for, the, for who became deacons in Acts. That's who we were talking about. This would actually be 12, but it's actually more than 12 because he's going to show us the divisions of who gets, who, who, how they're going to judge people up. So notice, verse 14, you answered me, the people answered Moses and said, the thing which you've said to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you. Now watch this. Leaders of thousands and of hundreds and of fifties and of tens, and officers for your tribes. Now stop. Notice that there is only a certain capacity with which each person can hold. That's it. You can only deal with so many. Notice that they're all divided up in a hierarchical structure. Now if they're in a hierarchy, how do you think that information is communicated? Telephone? Everybody loves the gift of sarcasm, right? How is it? Probably, probably in a hierarchical structure. It goes down the chain as you go. Now, why would that be important? Isn't Moses stopped in Moab? Isn't he stopped right before they're going to cross over and he's given them this speech to prepare them not to make the mistakes of the past and, and to get their minds and their hearts right for when they cross over to take this land that God's given? Yes, he is. Can you imagine that? I mean, they didn't have microphones back then. You know, there wasn't, nobody had a, had a PA system set up for Moses. So probably what happened was is he's standing in a high place and he's disseminating this information down to people and they are communicating it throughout the rank and file so that all the people around them can also understand. In fact, it's believed that the book of Deuteronomy actually takes place, everything that's in it, over a span of about two months. Why? So that everybody knows, so that nobody's lost, and that everybody's on the same page. That's the idea. It's possible we could totally start the telephone game and see how it works with just this bunch, so I'm sure there. But again, if we played the telephone game for two months, we probably have much more chance of getting it right if it's the same message. You see what I'm saying? So there's this going back over and over and over. Or probably this, now what I hear is this, but what you mean is this. No, 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 that's not what I mean. Here's what I mean. It gives a chance for clarification in those situations. See, we all relate to this really well, almost too well. It makes us uncomfortable. So verse 16, then... I charged your judges at the time saying, now watch this, this is important. Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen. Stop. What did he just do by calling them your fellow countrymen? 
What did he just do to these judges? What's that? He made them equal. He puts them on a level playing field. Before you were selected, you were just like them. It's important. Notice it's this idea of humility when you judge. Now, stop for a second. Do we have favoritism as a problem in legal systems today? Nuh-uh. <laughs> Do we really? But think about it. That's a problem, isn't it? This person got by, you know, this person was bought off. Well, how in the world did that person get out of that without being charged? We can't believe There's all kinds of things that happen behind the scenes that no one knows about. Corruption. And so the Lord, because he's all about truth and he loves his people, but he is also equally about justice, wants to make sure that it is all set out and that everybody who's going to judge is going to be clear. So watch the seriousness of this. Here are the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge how? Fairly, righteously is the idea. What does it mean to judge righteously? I mean, if I, if I, if I said, uh, Tabitha, judge righteously. When you, when you come into a conflict there in the nursery, judge righteously. What, what am I calling her to do? How do you know what the right thing is? God's standards, the Bible, the list of rules in the nursery. Stop picking your nose and throwing it on somebody else, kid. Right? That kind of thing. But there's a standard. There's a certain parameters. Get this. There's an understood expectation amongst the people of what is right and what is wrong. And when you are the one who is standing in a judgment spot amongst people that selected you, think through this, okay? You have to judge them in a righteous manner. Why? Because there's a lot of power there. What you say about this goes. Therefore, it needs to be held to a standard that is worthy of judgment being rendered. Now, we don't need to to brainstorm about this too much. Who's the original judge? So all things should be done in his mold, correct? Everybody see how this, it all comes back to him and his word. All of it does. So now moving forward, judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen or the alien who is with him. Uh Uh-oh, aliens. Does that mean for Mars? No, what does yours have? Does yours have something like sojourner? Do you have a different translation? The foreigner? Stranger? Now, what does he just do here? So far we've had you're going to judge your fellow countrymen who they chose you, you need to judge according to a standard, which is righteousness. And when you judge between countrymen and countrymen or a countryman and an alien, does that play out different? It's the same standard across the board. Get this. Judgment and justice should never be a respecter of persons. It should always be an honor of standards. Does everybody see why that's important? See, this is why God can't just save everybody and usher everybody in and be like, it's all good. No, in order to provide the salvation, somebody's got to pay the price. Why? Justice has to be served. Somebody has to die for my wrongdoing. When I lie, when I speak bad about somebody, when I lose my temper, when I fly off the handle, somebody's got to pay for that. I'm running up a bill every time. This is why the blood that paid for it has to be perfect. How many sins can I die for? One. That's all my blood will cover. I'm pretty sure, not positive, I got more than one sin. Right? Thank you. (laughs) Perfect blood. You're in the same group with Maxine. Perfect, Perfect blood covers the gamut 
and sets people free. This is why salvation can't be taken for granted. Somebody had to die for it. Justice was served somewhere. It's not just, here's a lot of grace, guys, and then we all become hippies. It's not what it is. Go ahead, did you have a question? Yes, yes. Yes. Well, and, and here's the thing. It all depends on how you phrase it, doesn't it? Okay? All sins are the same in the fact that they all deserve death. So what we call a white lie is, is really no difference than the heinous crimes of Adolf Hitler. You see what I'm saying? It all deserves death. It's all wrong. It all falls short in, in even the smallest dust particle of a fraction from the holiness of what God is. And that's why when we talk about sin, we often want to jump straight into sin what we really need to do is back up and observe and appreciate and value the holiness of God and who he is before we ever step into the sin realm. Or it's the whole idea, if we don't understand, what's that? He loves all of his children. Absolutely. In fact, we know from scripture, he loves the world and he provided salvation for the world. But when salvation is placed before people, not everybody believes. In fact, there are, there are two numerous passages, the end of Romans 9 and the end of Romans uh, is it 10, that talk about the reason why people aren't saved is for one reason. When they hear the truth, they're not responding to it. And it's their fault for that. So yes, sin is all the same when we consider what the punishment or what it deserves. Sin is different in the degree of which it is manifested, if that makes sense. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, we talk about how sexual sin is actually worse than other sins. Why is that? Because all those other sins are committed outside of the body. But because of the way God committed sexual relationships or created sexual relationships, you actually sin within the body when you're engaged in some kind of sexual perversion. So that makes it a much more dangerous sin. There also seems to be some kind of indication whenever we see the great white throne judgment uh, in Genesis chapter 20 that when books are opened for those people who are dead, I mean, these are people who aren't going to heaven, okay? They, they don't have the pardon of Jesus, so the books are open over here, and then the book of life is open over here. And Jesus Christ, the judge, is going to go through and look and judge. And why does he have all these books open? These books are the works of these people. He's looking for one thing. Do their works merit righteousness? And what you find is, is because all of their works are imperfect, they don't. There seems to be some kind of indication that the degree of revelation about what they knew about God, Jesus, sin, those types of things, is to the degree of which they will be punished forever in the lake of fire. So there seems to be, it's not like a Dante's Inferno, you go down in the eighth floor or something weird like that. It's not like this elevator of hell that just gets hotter and worse as you go on. I don't think that's it. Uh, but I do think it's a degree to where, yeah, because of the responsibility that you had to respond to revelation and the accountability you had before a holy God, you're held accountable to that standard. Yes, I believe that it is. I believe that it is, Absolutely. In fact, the Bible's emphatic about that. In fact, there's rarely a page of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that does not speak in some point on the doctrine of rewards. It's incredible. So, yeah. It's, it's, in fact, here's an interesting thing. Probably next summer, when all the classes go away, uh, I'm actually probably going to start a new class over the summer if you're interested. Uh, and what I want to do is I want to have our Bibles out, and I want to read through the book that I shared with you guys last uh, week, Final Destiny. 
Uh, have a, I have 10, since we were getting so cheap, I have 10 copies coming right now. We're going to sell them for 20 bucks a piece to make up for shipping. But if you'd like to come sometime throughout the week, and we'll sit down and spend an hour and a half, and we'll read through a chapter, and we'll read through the Word of God, and we'll talk about the arguments, and we'll ask the question, is this true? Is this false? Is this right? Is this wrong? We'll, we'll have a good discussion about it. So if that's something you want to participate in, just in the future, that's something we'll do. And if you're interested, we have a good uh, turnout. We'll, we'll find a time to do that. So it'll be good. But yeah, to the same degree, for Christians, for believers, yes, you're accountable for the amount of revelation that you have in responding to it. Why? Because it's true. And when we operate apart from truth, we're in unbelief. So, yeah, it's very, very serious stuff. Now, I think this is important to say. God doesn't give requirements of such a serious nature of people because he's trying to destroy your good time. I think that's important to, to understand. A lot of times that seems to be how teenagers view God. Well, God's just trying to kill my good time. No, he's trying to keep you from crazy stuff. Keeping people from sin is not destroying your good time. It is saving you a world of hurt is what it is. And we have to remember, if it's true, he is speaking to the truth of reality. This is why all these people in the Bible have messed up before us and we get to read about it. So we don't make those same mistakes. That's the definition of wisdom. Very important for us to know. So notice, your fellow countrymen, Verse 16, you're going to judge righteously. It doesn't matter if it's between a man and his fellow countrymen or a man and an alien who's there, a foreigner, same standard. Verse 17, you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Doesn't doesn't matter who they are in the tribe. Doesn't matter what position they hold. Doesn't matter if anybody can interpret that, that'd be great. Doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or a little money. God doesn't care. The same standard. It says here, you shall not fear man. For the judgment is whose? Okay, stop for a second. Who's giving the judgment? Well, ultimately. But who's pronouncing the judgment over the people? Whoever they selected, right? So notice what he's essentially saying there. When you judge and when you speak, you're speaking for God. You think they get serious? You think there'd be reasons why they should fear men whenever it comes in? I mean, a little bribery here, a little persuasion there, right? Maybe the mob shows up. You don't do that. Maybe they give them some of that. I don't know if Jews had the mob, but whatever, right? You get that. There could be some sort of pressure, influence to corrupt justice. So notice that God gives a positive and a negative here. Do not show partiality by fearing man. No, 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 no. There's your negative. Understand the judgment that you render is mine. In other words, you're speaking for me to these people. Man, that's pretty serious. Notice he moves on here. The case that is too hard for you, if there's something that you can't come down on a righteous decision about, you shall bring it to me and I will hear it. I command you at that time all the things, sorry, I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. And it's almost like there's a little break there. Now remember, he's going back over their history. Here's where you've been. And why is he doing that? Because he's reminding them of not making the same mistake of where they go. Verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb. Now what, what, where is Horeb? Do we remember? <laughs> uh, maybe. Yeah, what is Horeb? Do we know? No, let's go to the other one. Well, you can kind of see it. What is Horeb? Do we know? Mount Sinai, 
Whenever it brings up Horeb in here, it's talking about Sinai. It's very important for you to realize that because it starts to click together a little bit easier. It's not like some strange mountain out in the middle of nowhere. Well, I thought they were around Sinai. What happened? No, it's the same place. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. Now remember, the interesting thing about Kadesh Barnea, everybody see it right up here? The interesting thing about this and the reason why in this destitute situation here that you wanted to come by there is because there was actually oases there and they also had plots of plantation land or where animals could graze you could maybe have some crops that are going on there for a period of time or something there was some sort of vegetation there in order to help them survive in the situation so it says here verse 20 i said to you you have come to the hill country of the amorites which the lord our god is about to give us now watch this he's prepping them He's letting them know, you're on the cusp of God fulfilling this great promise. Verse 21, see, the Lord your God has placed the land, very important, before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now, we talked about this just only, we only touched on it for a second uh, last week. When you see this whole idea here of take possession, everybody see that in there? You have take possession. Where else do we have? Uh, take uh, Possess in verse 8. See, I've placed the land before you. Go in and possess it. Anytime that you see this idea of taking possession or possess the land, you are talking about inheriting the land. Receive the inheritance that the Lord has provided for you or he set aside for you. Very important. So anytime you see that, have that inheritance language in your mind. He says here, do not fear, do not be dismayed, okay? Verse 22, then all of you approached me and said, let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up in the cities which we shall enter. The thing pleased me and I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe. Now, we're familiar with this because we spent so much time dealing with it, right? He's recounting this event. Let me ask you a question. How many of these 12 men from the tribes chosen do you think also served as the judges that they just chose out a little while ago? You think that probably had some kind of relationship? I think it did. So notice, when we talk about just selecting these people out to go as spies, we're talking about people that had a long-lasting reputation who, when they gave you a word about their findings, you would readily believe it because you have this personal interaction and trust relationship with them. This is why it was so deceitful for them to give a bad report. They were playing upon the affections of the people and those personal relationships to pull them away from obedience. So it says here, verse 24, they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol. Now remember, Eshkol means cluster and spied it out. That's where they got the cluster of grapes from. That's what it became known as. It says here, then they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us, and they brought us back a report and said, it is a good land which the Lord our God is about to give us. True, right? Is that true? Yes, it is. Yet you were not, what? You were not willing. You were unwilling to go up. Even though the report of the land was exactly how God said you were obstinate in your obedience, is the idea. But rebelled 
Notice that the not willing to go up is the attitude. Notice the rebellion is their response to the report. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you grumbled in your tents and said, now watch this, because the Lord hates us. Now what does that sound like immediately to you? Whiny babies. Exactly. Now you just hate me. Why does everybody hate me? Because you whine, that's why, right? Aren't you thankful God doesn't say that? But notice their conclusion. Think about how messed up this is. Have they known they're going to the land? Yes. Has God repeatedly promised them the land? And all their travels on the way to the land is God taking care of them. Man, every time they grumbled about something, God's sitting there, here, here, here. And he's not just like, this will barely get you by. He's given them an abundance, okay? So God has this track record of truth that they should, they should somehow pelt these people regarding their faith in the face. It really should. It should make them wake up and realize, wait, God has my back. Fear is irrational when he has promised to take care of me. Exactly. I mean, whenever that water came down, didn't Moses sing a song? Did everybody remember that? Exodus 15? They turned around and they looked, right? Moses holding his staff up, and next thing you know, all the people are through on dry land. Here comes Pharaoh. We're going to get him. We're going to kill you guys. Blah, blah, blah. We're going to take him back into captivity. And he lets his hands down. All of a sudden, everybody's seen Cecil DeMille, right? <laughs> comes down. And, I mean, they're doing the best they can. and washes them away. And what is the contents of their song? The horse and the rider are in the sea. Man, and we get mad at, at heavy metal music for their lyrics. That's gruesome, right? The horse and the rider's in the sea. I picture an Irish jig or something going on. Moses is leaning out there, holding up, you know, doing a little dance or something. I don't know. But think about it. That's gruesome. They're, they're celebrating death of their enemies. Is that wrong? Is it wrong to celebrate the death of your enemy? We're supposed to love our enemies. Isn't that what Jesus says? Pray for them. Oh, you had to bring Jesus into this, right? What's that? While they're alive. Love them while they're alive. When they're dead, do a jig, right? It's interesting, isn't it, that that's Moses' response. And if you read Moses' song, it's all about glory to God, what God has done in delivering in this situation. How could they so easily forget the deliverance, the rescue, all, all words where we get the word salvation from, the salvation of the Lord? In fact, I think Moses says that. Take a look at these men. This is the day of the salvation of the Lord, for you will never see their faces again. Gone. Do you have a question? Do you have a thought? Yes. 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 When God commands genocide on an entire nation of people. And he does, too. The Bible's extremely bloody, and he does. And we're actually going to deal with that on, on Sundays. We probably won't get to that till March, February. Yeah, February of 2020. So, uh, but we're going to get there. We're going to deal with it because it needs to be dealt with. 
Because if you have any any person who who's a pagan or has become an unbeliever, they grew up in church and heard about this and were repulsed by the idea and everything, that's a charge they want to bring against you. Well, your God, you know, commanded this. Yeah. Yep, he did. And let's talk about why. See, nobody wants to talk about why he commanded it. They just want to blame him for doing it. Well, yeah, he totally did it. He totally commanded this is how it should be done. And actually, Israel was unfaithful in getting the job done. Why is that? Because just as much of love he is is just as much of justice he is. Our problem today is we want to take the attributes of God and we want to do this with the ones that we like the most. I like this one better. Oh, I really want to reflect on this one. Well, this one really helps me out right now. Well, I'm having a hard time, so this one matters way more to me. And it's very subjective how we look to God. I promise you this, his attributes are all objective. Why? Because they're all equal, and they're all perfect, and they're all total. And so we have to hold them in regards. My, my, my good grief, this is a soapbox, but I'll, I'll, t- I'll talk to you about it because I think it's important. My interactions with people who abuse the word sovereign is ridiculous. I mean, I'm, I'm having a discussion with a guy right now on Twitter. We're having a Twitter discussion. That's how serious you know it is. But this guy is telling me that God meticulously controls all things at all time. Okay? God controls everything. And there is nothing that anyone can do at any time that he did not want done and therefore makes them do. So we're talking about the rape of children. God wants that to happen. This guy's like, yeah. I'm talking about whenever somebody gets murdered senselessly in cold blood. Yeah, God wants that to happen. God made sure that happened. Well, how in the world would he do such horrible things to people? Because it's all for his glory. That sounds real pious. Yeah, there's a lot more of Satan in that picture. In fact, he actually said to me, well, for those people who actually take God's sovereignty seriously, right? And I went, right? Because what's he accusing me of? I don't care anything about God's sovereignty. You see what I'm saying? But what happens? When you elevate one attribute over others, it skews your view of him. Is it easy to keep them all on an evil pl- uh, on an evil plane on an even plane? No, it's not easy, but it's worth the investigation to think clearly about God. That's the whole reason why we started the Sunday Sunday morning study. We we will never live right if we don't think right about God, and so therefore we need to see how He works with people and what He does so that we think correctly about Him, as the Bible tells us. Very important. So you get into all this dangerous ideology about it um forgive me for that little thing but man it really gets my goat uh moving on here uh let's see here uh eshkol uh, verse 26 you were not willing to go up but rebelled against the command of the lord and you grumbled in your tents and notice that the accusation because the lord hates us does that corrupt his character does that mess up his character does god hate them no in fact, God led them through all this stuff because he loves them. They are concluding and blaming God. You hate us, and that's why you're leading us here to kill him. Did God say any of them would die? No. In fact, we find out that when you follow what the Lord says, you live. And that's true in the New Testament. You don't just live. You live abundantly. So notice it says here, because the Lord hates us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think that the Amorites were a greater or lesser people than the Egyptians? Probably a lesser. Why? Because it's pretty clear that Egypt ruled everything at that time. They were the superpower of the world at that time. 
It makes no sense to see the deliverance of God from the greater evil to be put in the hands to be squashed like a bug in a lesser evil. Can't he deliver from that? Or let's put it in in terms that we understand from Romans chapter 8. He who gave up his son for us, will he not also freely give us all things? If he took care of the greatest need that we have, then can we not place everything else in his hands without worry or fear? You can. The problem is, is that we often don't. And I guarantee you, when we don't, we come to conclusions like, well, God just hates me. We come to crazy conclusions like that. What is that a result of? Unbelief. That's what it is. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Let me find you the exact verse. I think I still have it memorized from the NIV. Don't hold that against me. NIV joke. The nearly inspired version. Just kidding. Um, Let's see here. That's a joke. No, it's not. Um, Verse 32, 832. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Man, that's a beautiful promise. That's worth memorizing right there. It's worth tattooing on your forehead. You never see it, though. All right, make sure you do it backwards so you can see it in the mirror. Um, moving on. It says here, verse 28. Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt. Notice the attitude, the, the uh, effect that it's had on the people, the bad report, saying, the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. Anybody seen any embellishment here? All right. And besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there. Now, what is with the Anakim? Do we remember? Giants. And remember, the Anakim are the same as the Rephaim and the Emim. In fact, if you want to mark a verse next to that so you know where it's at, chapter 2, verse 10, if you want to turn over and look at that, it's, a, it's actually a, a comment that was inserted later, it seems like, in the writings to explain why that's significant. But if you want to write that down, uh, 10, 11, 12, or all that comment that deals with that of chapter 2. But back to this real quick so we can wrap this up. I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry it seemed to be dragging here, but so much of this is so important. So verse 26, then I said to you, do not be shocked nor what? What's it say? Fear them, nor fear them. Why? Because a bad report was meant to install fear in people or instill fear in people. Why? So they wouldn't move forward. 10 guys came to a conclusion, gave a bad report, tried to control everybody and lead them in disobedience. Dangerous leadership. Verse 30, the Lord, your God, who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. In other words, y'all remember that? He didn't change. He can do it now. So, notice what it says. And in the wilderness, where you saw how the Lord your God, what? Carried you. How? Just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. Is Moses trying to recorrect their thinking about who God is? Notice that's a problem. Aren't you, don't, don't you think that it's interesting that Moses isn't attacking the symptoms that are showing? He goes straight for the root. The problem here is that you're thinking about God is wrong. So let's think back 
to what we know about him in the past and let that strengthen you and solidify your resolve so you can walk forward in faith in in this time when you desperately need it. So it says here, but, verse 32, for all this you did not, what's the word? You did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and a cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. Notice that paints him as their provider. He not only takes care of you, he's going before you and letting you know where you need to be so it's the best possible option for your survival and success. He says here, verse 34, Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry, and he took an oath. God swore is the idea. God is swearing something. And what does he say? Verse 35, not one of these men, this evil generation, notice there's his divine assessment of them. This evil generation shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers. Now stop for a second. And this is the verse we're going to stop on, even though it's in the middle of God swearing something and promising this. Not one of these men in this evil generation. Time out. Is God's opinion true? He calls them evil. Why? What leads God to conclude that these people who have been growing in Egypt, that he's brought out to this point, and he has demonstrated his faithfulness to, and he calls them evil. What if God called you evil? How would you feel about that? Might be like, I deserve it, right? But what? What was present that made him conclude you are an evil generation? In fact, whenever you see the assessment of Stephen in Acts 7, doesn't he say, you stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit? He's talking about the Jewish nation in general. You always walk away from God. What is it? Unbelief. They're not trusting. Unbelief. Get this. I, I hope, and I've been trying to preach this, and I will preach this till the day I die here. Unbelief is evil. We have too much of God's word, very clear, where people have labored for hours and hours and months and years to get it to us in the English language. We have too much revelation of a divine nature given to us to operate in unbelief. It doesn't make sense and here's what we see painted over and over for us the consequences of unbelief are disastrous because it doesn't just affect you it affects your family it affects your spouse it affects your kids it affects the extended family it affects everybody unbelief costs you dearly it's tragic because there's nothing like the god of the universe making a declaration over you that you are evil. Saved? Yeah. Evil? Yeah. You can be evil and still go to heaven. You're saved by faith alone. The way you respond to God and your walk with him can be one of complete rebellion. Evil. So anybody have any questions about that? That might have rattled your cage a little bit too. What's that? Good. Talk about it. 
Because if you're, cause, no, seriously, because if you're confused, there might be other people who are confused as well. And this. Mm-hmm. Yes, send some spies over to see it. Mm-hmm. Moses said it's a good idea, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason is, is because they brought the good report back, but when they had the opportunity to speak before the people and give the eyewitness testimony of what they saw, they wanted to bring up everything bad in order to keep the people from going in. So you go to Pizza Ranch after you're done here, right? Price is reasonable. Tables are clean. Floors have been swept and mopped. The food looks amazing. It's all fresh out there. You're having yourself the best time in the world. You go into the bathroom to wash your hands, and there are paper towels everywhere, and you know some kids got in there with some something crazy all over the walls, and you walk out. Somebody said, you went to Pizza Ranch. How was that? What's probably the first thing that's going to come to your mind? See, it doesn't matter how good everything was. It's always the bad thing that wants to come to the surface. These 10 guys wanted to manipulate the entire nation to disobey God because they got scared and they weren't trusting. And if you look at the parallel account in Numbers 14, they're commanded at that point or they're judged to wander in the wilderness until the last person who is 20 and over dies. That's their punishment. One year for uh, the 40 days that they sent spies in the land. But the 10 guys who led them astray, he has them killed right then and there. They're responsible for leading the people into sin. Now, notice that because they are responsible as leaders to lead the people in sin, and therefore they deserve a greater punishment, notice they didn't make each individual person sin. Caleb's still getting in. Joshua's still getting in. You see what I'm saying? They were faithful. There was something different about them. And what was it? We're told in the Scripture. They trusted the Lord wholeheartedly. That's what set them apart. So does that help clear that up some? Okay, if you go back, when we spent some time on it, everybody not, might not have been here, but if you spend some time in Numbers 13 and 14, it really lifts all the fog out of this picture. For us reading it here, all these people would have had a first-hand account of it. Why? Because they didn't turn to go into the promised land or in the direction of the promised land until after the last person died. Can you imagine wandering around in circles in a desert until somebody died? You know, at first we'd probably be a little compassionate. Probably year 20 we'd be like, why won't you die, right? Just die already so we can go in. It's like, well, you still got 20 years left. Never satisfied with anything. Absolutely, absolutely. And here's something to think about as Christians. Should we really expect anything other than negativity in this world? We really shouldn't. And that's why we're constantly told, your hope is not here. It's in a much better place. It's, it's, it's forward-looking. Shouldn't expect anything great to be coming about here. Regardless if, our, if we had a great, great life and we were all kings and queens in some place and people were giving us pedicures or whatever it is, something crazy like that, we all still die. You still have to face death. And death is the exact consequence for sin. There's no hope here. None. None. Yes, ma'am.
You know what? I don't know about Netanyahu's faith. That might be a Pete or Tom question. I don't know if they've researched that. I know that on, <laughs> on his Twitter account, uh, they've been very respectful about Christians who are celebrating some of their holidays with them, uh, which I think is very interesting. Uh, but it depends on how orthodox he is in his Jewishness. I, don't, I, I seriously doubt that he could be the prime minister of Israel and be a messianic Jew. I don't think they'd have it. I think, I think they would be pretty. If he is, he's closet not telling anybody. Um, but however, God has always promised, especially from what you see in Romans 9, 10, and 11, there is always a remnant of believing Jews, of which Paul was one. And his discouragement was, uh, if the Jews have had all of this history about Jesus, and he's finally showed up and he's died for their sins, why aren't they believing? What's the whole problem here? And, and he comes to a conclusion in Romans 9. It's not that God's word failed. That's not the problem here. Well, the problem is, is their unbelief. They're trying to pursue the law and earn their own righteousness when righteousness has already been provided for them in the cross and they just need to believe. So that's his whole argument that he comes to. But we're told in Romans 11 especially, there's always a remnant of, of believing Jews. Uh, we're familiar with Jews uh, for Jesus, which you guys have had speak here before. I mean, they're believing Jews. We have a lot to learn from them. Why? Because our, our faith is authentically Jewish. It really is. Uh, they have a really amazing corner on the market by being able to appreciate the nuances of the Old Testament and see how they're magnified in the person of Christ. And I'm hoping, even though I'm not Jewish, we can do some of that as well. Maybe I'll grow those little things out you guys will think I am for a while. So, I don't know. Any other questions? Good discussion. Good. I want us thinking critically about this. Because notice, this isn't just stuck in some portal in time. This speaks to how do we obey God, belief and unbelief? Can we trust his word? What are the consequences? What are the benefits of being faithful? This, this speaks to where we are right now in every day in and outs of life. It really does. So, all right, let's pray. Father, thank you that your word testifies to the trustworthiness of who you are and shows a track record of your impeccable character. Lord, help us to see you soberly. Uh, Father, if we've had any kind of inflated ideas about how we think you might work or what you may do, Lord, correct our understanding in that, please, and give us new eyes to see the word for what it truly says. Please allow us to let it give us our theology, not to bring our theology into it, Lord. Uh, please bless our weeks, and when we're given opportunities, help us to be faithful. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.